Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 306 with Chris DeWolf of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, hope you're doing well. Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. Hope you're doing okay and you are surviving and thriving during uh, this lockdown. Hope you and your family are healthy and safe. I know it is a crazy time uh, to be alive. Um, Let's talk about today's guest, Chris DeWolf. He is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Jam City. Uh, Chris actually started a little company called MySpace, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, It was basically the largest website in the world and the biggest social network of its time, MySpace. And uh, we talk about how he uh, scaled that company out and sold it in 2015 for 580 million and uh, how MySpace created a roadmap for companies like Spotify and YouTube, kind of things that he wished that he did differently. And then he talks about his company, Jam City, uh, what they're doing around the gaming space, how to be a great storyteller, create amazing games, what it takes really to build large user bases and uh, really just around measured risks around innovation and so much more. This was a really interesting interview, incredible story, incredible background. Um, you know, Chris has had a lot of success, uh, not just with 
MySpace, but also with Jam City and the apps and the games that they've produced. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Uh, if you are enjoying these interviews, please do take the time to leave us a review uh, on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you are listening. Um, guys, it helps more than you can imagine. And also, please do share this with two friends. Uh, as you know, we work super hard to find these incredible founders to interview, founders that most people don't get the time with or get in touch with because we've got such an incredible platform. Uh, we can you know, get really hard to reach founders to, to share their experiences with you on how they've started and grown these incredibly crazy successful companies. All right, guys, so please do share it with two friends. It's all we ask. We work really hard. This is 100% free. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? Um, well, I actually created this job, but uh, generally, um, yeah, I've been an entrepreneur for I don't know, probably 25 years now. And I guess where my passion really comes from is creating things that lots and lots of people can get joy from. And you know, that kind of takes me back to the MySpace days when I created MySpace to when I was done with MySpace, um, a lot of thought went into, you know, what's next. And I thought a lot about music. I thought a lot about video. And then I landed on gaming because it was scalable and ultimately, I knew that mobile was going to blow up and everyone was going to have a console in their pocket. And um, so that is the space that we went after because I thought it could grow in a big way, raise money, um, had about three or four people to start with, and then grew it out to about 750 people. So, yeah, that's how we, that's how we did it. Yeah, interesting. So... The two companies that um, you've been, yeah, like you've started in the past 25 years is is MySpace and Jam City. Yeah, and then Response Space before that. And then I was part of a really early team um, on a company called XDrive in the late 90s, which was cloud-based storage, uh, believe it or not, for consumers. So it was one of those amazing ideas where we raised a lot of money, but it was really a company before its time. So that's how I dove into the internet at first. Interesting. So um, I'd love to talk about the early journey in MySpace um, and uh, then move on to Gem City, uh, which is uh, the company you're uh, the CEO of now. Um, so I'm curious, uh, how did like was MySpace your first company? No, it wasn't. So it's like yeah, one of the recommendations I have is I, I went to business school at at USC and um, I knew then that I really wanted to become an entrepreneur, but I knew I also wasn't quite ready, um, which is why I decided that I wanted to be on you know a founding team or an early team of a really promising internet company. So that was really. X Drive. And then after that, I started a company called Response Space. I sold that after two years and did really well on that. And then I founded MySpace after that. But uh, MySpace was the first really large company that I started. 
Interesting. And how did the concept of MySpace come about? Because it feels like, you know, I remember, well, I would have been, let's say 15 years ago, I created a MySpace account. Um, I was pretty young, but, you know, I was you know, I had my favorite friends and, and like, you know, you had, I think it was your top six or, or top nine and I used to move people in and out of it and other people used to have me and I felt pretty special. So I'm curious, like, how did that all come about? Because that was really the pioneered first social network that I was exposed to and I think, um, like, the, you know, the Western world at large was exposed to. So it's a, a pretty incredible feat. Uh, so I'm curious, how, how did that idea conceptualize? Yeah, it, was, it literally became the largest website um, in the United States and I think in the world. And, you know, by far, in a way, the biggest social network. But, yeah, a lot of it, the way, the way I look at um, companies, businesses, projects, investments, um, a lot of it is from a passion perspective, but a lot of it's also from kind of looking at micro, sorry, macro trends that are out there, both from a pop culture perspective and from a technology perspective. So if you kind of think back to 2003, that was, you were probably also on AIM. Um, you had email, you had a Blackberry that could take pictures. Um, you were just starting, everyone was just starting to get broadband. So what was interesting about that time was um, everyone was taking a lot of pictures, but they didn't have anywhere really fun to put them. I think Kodak had a site where you could upload your, your photos to, but you know, that's not fun. No one else can see them. You can't share them. Um, and so a, we thought it would be interesting to have a really fun community where people could enjoy the photos that they took. And then from a communication perspective, it was kind of the same email and aim were largely used but they weren't really that fun to use and so myspace um we also thought of it as a place to be your primary communication hub um, that in a lot of ways would replace email and would replace the need for instant messenger um and around the same time, people were almost everyone had gotten away from dial up and everyone had some kind of cable modem or maybe even Wi-Fi at the time. And so all of these areas sort of were coming together. All of these trends were coming together at the same time, um, which from our perspective made MySpace a really, really interesting opportunity. And then I think more from um, like a pop culture perspective or from a social perspective, it was also a time when there was a lot less of a stigma um, around socializing online. So I think in the late 90s, if you had told someone that you met your wife on Match.com, um, it would have seemed a little bit weird. Um, or if you were in some kind of random group online, um, the average person would have thought that that would have been a little bit out of the norm. But all that was changing around 2003, 2004. And then you add on top of that um, how the music industry was changing and how the media industry was changing. And it just became, for us, um, really a perfect storm to create a community where you could um, 
connect around shared interests, share your favorite things with your friends, uh, make plans with your friends, and have MySpace really be your home online. And so, again, it was a combination of macro technology factors and then popular culture and social factors that were all kind of happening at the same time. And then we built the, um, I guess you would call it a website, the social network, very, very quickly. We got it online quickly. We executed really well, um, gave people what they want, made it a little bit irreverent. Um, it was um, very much influencer and, and media focused in, in a lot of ways. So like LA and New York were the first major adop uh, adopters, you know, along with London um, to MySpace. So, and then from there, it just kind of spread like wildfire. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, interesting. So what, what year did you start it? So we started building in the middle of 2003. And I think we did a soft launch around September, October 2003. And then it started gaining some real traction around November, December of that year, very, very quickly. Everything, strangely enough, with, it, with that business, everything really happened to plan, um, if not ahead of plan, um, in the first probably four years of the business. And then, um, you know, grew it heavily the following year in 2004, and then sold the company in 2005 to what was then News Corp, what is now... Fox, I guess, what is now Disney. Yeah, because, um, yeah, so like in the space of two to three years, you sold that company um, for, yeah, it was $580 million. So that's pretty, that's pretty crazy growth. Yeah, it was, it was definitely crazy growth from a user perspective, especially when you consider that um, mobile was not really used for what it's used for now. And the majority of people, if they had a high-end device, it was BlackBerry and they didn't use it to access the web in any way. It was just more of a communication tool and nothing else. So the fact that it grew that quickly and it was on the web and it had way more page views than Yahoo, which was the top website at the time, way more time spent than Yahoo, way more uh, unique users than Google. It, um, and that all happened in a very short period of time. And those companies have been around for a very long time. So yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. And then, um, you know, it also brought out the whole sort of notion, I think, of influencers. And then it was also the roadmap for, you know, to a certain degree, what Spotify is right now. We have the largest licensed catalog of music in the world where we had deals with um, Universal, at the time EMI, Warner Music, and Sony, um, as well as all the indie labels. So you could find any music that you want. You could create a playlist. You could have your playlist on your site. It was all ad-based. Um, so yeah, from from that standpoint, there were tons of breakthroughs, uh, lots of, you know, the biggest, um, the biggest musicians in the world were discovered on MySpace. The first, uh, the first video, uh, short video that would be, I guess, kind of Quibi style video or, you know, maybe professionalized YouTube video was 
made and debuted on MySpace. The show The Office, when that came out, like in 2004, that premiered on MySpace before it premiered on television. So there's a lot of really interesting popular culture moments um, on MySpace during that time. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I'm curious, like, um, what was the user base uh, like around the time that you sold? Because you guys were like, uh, even even in 2009, like you stayed on a CEO, but then you eventually stepped down. Like, at, at, like you guys were bigger than Facebook. So what was the user base around, like, around the time you sold in 2005? I really don't remember. Um, but I think it was, I mean, it was big, and I'm sorry, that doesn't help. <laughs> That's um, a okay, long was, time ago. Yeah, the, the rate of growth was um, the, most impressing, the most impressive aspect um, of what we were doing and how it was changing the way people use uh, the web and how they communicated, how they expressed themselves. All those things were uh, really groundbreaking. But I'd have to look at media metrics. If I, if I had to guess, um, I would say in the U.S., my guess would be 20 to, 20 to 30 million unique daily users, but that's, that was a long time ago, I, and I just don't remember. I'd have, you'd have to get the information from Comscore, media metrics, or something like that. Yeah, no, that's okay. So I'm curious, like, when it comes to that, like, that, that level of growth, was that viral growth strategic? Um, what did you have, uh, like, did you strategically build in any components to fuel that virality? I think the whole use case for MySpace was around doing things communally with your friends and the notion that anything you do with friends is more fun than doing it alone. So listening to music has always been more of a, and talking about music has always been more of a communal act. Sharing photos and talking about photos has always been more of something communal. Um, the fact that you could even get connected with all of your friends and chat with all of your friends um, at the same time um, was viral. So if all of your friends are essentially making plans on MySpace and you're not a member, you're going to join. And if people are talking about um, a really cool new band they found on MySpace and you're really into music, you're going to join and you're going to find that band. So I think it was the way we constructed the service that really made it, <clears throat> made it viral. Um, it wasn't, there weren't any real tricks or anything like that, but you know, people would share, there was like lots and lots of content to share, which would, would make it viral both inside and outside of um, MySpace. Um, we sort of gave YouTube their start and because we allowed YouTube to actually um, paste their videos onto people's MySpace pages. And so if you remember, um, you could do your own HTML and design your page the way you wanted to design it. Um, and so you could have widgets on your page of, you know, that, that had different functions. And one of those um, was YouTube. So that was where YouTube really got its first distribution. And then as it was 
you know, create a video on YouTube. They would, it got its original distribution on MySpace, and we allowed that, and that's what allowed it to grow. And then people would go back to YouTube, and then YouTube started their own distribution, and they were able to grow that way. Interesting. So, um, at, uh, you know, at the time, like, uh, when you started all the way to the time you sold, how many employees did you guys have around, to, uh, like, a rough estimate? When I left the company, we probably had around 1,600 employees, is my guess. Um, when we sold the company, my guess would be around four or 500, maybe 400. Wow. And so that means you were hiring a new person, yeah, basically, yeah, every week, or like from, from yeah, it's pretty, yeah, from launch to 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 sale. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, and I'd say when you're hiring people that quickly, just as a management tip, um, you're not always going to get the greatest, all of the greatest people in the world because you're under this pressure to start up all these new services support them and you get into this mindset of throwing bodies out of problem, throwing employees out of problem, as opposed to, you know, um, developing it in a super technologically sound way and um, developing. So you create a lot of technical debt and a lot of kind of people that when you grow really quickly and, and you end up breaking some things. So I think it was, you know, probably the right thing to do, but I think in retrospect, you probably hire a little bit slower and, um, you know, we hired a lot of people to our international expansion. We very quickly opened up in, you know, the UK, Italy, Spain. Um, we did a joint venture with uh, SoftBank with Masayoshi-san in Japan. We opened up there, we opened up in China. We had an office in Canada. Like I could go on and on and on and on, and all these offices were staffed up with their own GMs and sales forces and localization. And so, yeah, there was a lot going on, a lot of work, and a lot of people being hired in a short period of time. Yeah, that's crazy. So, um, a couple last questions, and then I'd love to talk to you about Gem City and what you're working on there. Um, just around the the sale. Um, like, uh, why did you decide to sell uh, in such a short period of time? So we were getting a lot of offers at the time, and we thought that we could legitimately be a stronger company. Um, the, the sort of thought was that we could combine our amazing distribution and authentic social network and then layer on access to every kind of content in the world um, from a company like News Corp. And, you know, we'd also been talking to Viacom and MTV at the same time and, you know, some other folks at the same time. And we thought that we could be, you know, a much stronger, bigger company in doing that. And, you know, I think it didn't quite work out that way, but it made a lot of sense. And I think the other thing to keep in mind was no internet company or media company had sold for, or had been even remotely successful or had, had sold for anywhere near that amount of money um, 
since the dot-com crash and whatever that was in 2001 or 2000. And so at the time, uh, $580 million was a lot of money. Um, that it, you know, looking back on it now, it doesn't, you know, seem like a particularly large sum, but at the time, if you put everything into context, it was a lot of money and we thought that we could create a lot more value by um, being part of a bigger organization that had access to all the media in the world. Yeah, interesting. Um, and yeah, look, I, I agree still to this day, like half a billion dollars, even 15 years ago, that's like, it's a lot of money, significant amount of money. So um, I'm curious, just uh, before we move on to, to everything you're doing in Jam City now, I, I'm curious to know um, any lessons, like key, big, big lessons that you, you've taken away from that journey that you'd like to share with our audience, maybe maybe top three from that journey? Sure. Yeah, I would say on the, like on the positive side, like how quickly um, we took, went from like concept to soft launch um, was unlike anything that I've ever done before with a team. And so there was obviously a lot of other competitors out there, you know, including, you know, much smaller ones that never quite um, got off the ground like Friendster or Tribe and, you know, a whole bunch of other ones. But, you know, we got the site up and running very, very quickly. And um, it's one of the things that allowed for our success. So when you see a need in the market, move quickly and get it to market and, you know, very quickly test it to see if it if it resonates, if, if your hypothesis is true. So I think that was one lesson on the positive side. You know, I talked to you a little bit about, you know, possibly hiring too quickly and um, thinking about solving problems um, and, you know, through hiring too many people versus taking a more measured approach. Um, I think there was also, you know, some lessons to be learned around focus. And so at the time we were thinking about, hey, you have this social network, but, and, um, you know, the whole premise of what I said before around, you know, everything, when you have a critical mass of people and people that you know, um, everything is that much more valuable. So there was Craigslist at the time. So we decided, hey, like we should create our own Craigslist. We should have our own movie review site. We should have our own, um, music set. We should have our own music label. We started a music label. So there's probably just too much going on um, at one time um, versus all these things that I've mentioned, uh, you know, Facebook or Snapchat or someone else has done many, many, many years later. You know, we had um, instant messenger with uh, like all these things we, we had at the time. And so I think the like really getting the core sort of photo sharing, communication, ability to be able to find people you know, user experience, like getting all of those things 100% right um, probably would have been the right focus at the time. But I'm not sure if that hurt us that much. I think after, I think the other, probably the third big lesson is that 
when you sell a company or when you buy a company, or it could even, lesson could even apply to when you raise money, that you should make sure that your values and culture are aligned with your new financial partner slash acquirer slash company you acquire. Um, meaning, you know, there was nothing bad about, you know, News Corp or Fox. It's just that they were a media company that was very much built for, you know, bottom line EBITDA and um, revenue. And then there was MySpace, which was, you know, profitable actually when they, when they bought us and we were, uh, you know, we had a real business model, but we were like in a position where the, the, the one thing that mattered most was revenue and EBITDA as opposed to the whole notion of blitz scaling. For example, Reid Hoffman talks about blitz scaling where if you have something good going and there's a huge consumer demand for it, don't worry so much about the unit economics of the business. Scale it to um, build a moat around your business and get everyone in the world on it where the switching costs become so high um, that you, uh, you have that moment in time to do that. And I think that, you know, that's definitely one thing I learned that we had that moment in time. We probably focused far too early on, you know, really growing our revenue. You know, some of the top execs in the company at, at News Corp publicly said, MySpace was going to do a billion in revenue. Like this is right after they acquired us, very close, quickly after they bought us, and 250 million in EBITDA. And you know that really changes your like values as a company. It changes your um, priorities in terms of you know how you build out your advertising and monetization business versus features and um, creating a user experience. And neither YouTube nor Facebook had to deal with any kind of revenue expectations or profit expectations for many, many years. And so it's not like a bad thing. I mean, I think it's just, I think it's a lesson that you learn to make sure that you're aligned with whoever you're combining with, that these are going to be your new partners. You're going to be shoulder to shoulder with them and you better have similar goals to them or things may not work out how you plan. Yeah, I see. Interesting. So, well, thank you for sharing, Chris. So um, moving on to the next part of your journey, you, you, yeah, you haven't really stopped. So um, 2010, uh, you stepped down. Uh, st- no, sorry, sorry, 2009, you stepped down as CEO and, and kind of moved on um, to, and you purchased a company called MindJolt. Well, yeah, it was a little bit more deliberate than that. I mean, I, you know, took a couple of months again. And, you know, my true passion is um, developing services, products, projects um, that can give, that can scale and give lots and lots of people joy or fun. um, And, you know, at the time, again, I was thinking about several different industries. So I was thinking about the music industry because I had just done deals with Universal, Warner, Sony, and EMI. But to me, like those negotiations were 
so tough and so acrimonious and the margins were so thin that like I didn't want to go back into the music business again. And again, this was pre-Spotify. So I didn't want to go back into the music business because um, I knew it would take a massive investment and didn't, wasn't sure if it would ever get profitable. Um, the second thing I thought about was uh, what about video? And it felt to me like YouTube was already at critical mass in video and there wasn't any really major spot to play in video um, from you know what I knew. You know, the third thing I thought about was, hey, you could develop another social network that's better than MySpace, that's better than Facebook. And then when it really came down to thinking about what that would be, all the ideas seemed very incremental, and I felt like I was really too close to that idea to have an objective opinion on what would be a lot better. Then I thought about games, and the reason I thought about games was a lot of it came from my experience, and I mentioned to you earlier that I had a joint venture with we had a joint venture with Masayoshi-san and SoftBank. So every time we'd go back to Tokyo, they would arrange a trip to different consumer internet media firms in Tokyo. And in, back in 2006, you know, I learned that over half of the access to the number one social network in Japan at the time, which was called Mixi, was through mobile. And so their mobile devices were so far ahead of ours. Their connections were so much faster than ours your whole mind could open up and um, really imagine, your imagination could open up and, and think about what a mobile device would become um, in four or five years. And so that experience never really left my mind. Um, I would also say that um, at the time, Zynga had started their company and they were on the MySpace platform. and. They were making quite a bit of money on our platform. They're making quite a bit of money on the Facebook platform. And so it felt like there was room for new platforms to emerge. Um, I think the iPhone had come out maybe two or three years um, ahead of time, but we're starting to get to the point where it could support games. And it felt to me like games were going to be the next big thing and that there weren't going to necessarily be, if you look at all the other mediums, there weren't necessarily going to be more music listeners created. There weren't necessarily going to be more video watchers created, but there's going to be a heck of a lot more game players created because everyone was now going to have a console in their pocket in the form of their mobile device. And so we just got really, really excited about that. And then we got really excited about the fact that the majority of game players were young males playing on consoles. And with these young men playing on consoles meant that um, there wasn't a lot of great content made for an underserved audience of females or, quite frankly, just casual game players that wanted to pick up a game and play it and have access to it. And so that was the original premise for raising money. And so we raised money, went out and um, raised money, ended up raising money from Austin Ventures. Um, with some of the money that we raised, uh, we acquired a company called Mindjolt. We built um, 
game development studios. We did a lot of different things. We built up our infrastructure. Um, we created cross-functional uh, technology that allowed us to build the game once and um, it could live on the web or on mobile. And so that was really the big start was getting that initial investment, um, getting some content and distribution into our acquisition on Mindjolt, and then building up our own expertise um, internally. And then we were really off to the races. And then we started building our own games. And then we um, you know, had some big breakthroughs with Cookie Jam and Panda Pop, um, which were amazing because they were two of the top 20 grossing games in the world. And um, you know, just to think that at the same time, you know, two of the games that we had created were you know, two of the top grossing games in the world where people were spending all this money on these games. Um, you know, really showed us that uh, you know, we had developed the expertise to be really good storytellers and create amazing games. So there's a lot of things that happened in between there, but yeah, the initial the initial idea was that games were going to become huge on many platforms, including mobile, and that ended up being true. In 1995, there were 150 million gamers. Now there are 2.5 billion. No other medium has grown anywhere near that fast. And um, so, yeah, I think we, you know, really saw the opportunity early and captured it. And it was, it was like, if you want to kind of take it back to the thought process of starting MySpace and looking at like all the macro factors, as well as um, the social factors that contributed to our thought process, I think I think there's a lot of overlap there, meaning you know, everyone was going to have a console in their pocket. Um, there were underserved audiences out there that didn't have the software or content um, that they needed. And um, the competition um, wasn't such that you couldn't break into the new market and become a leader pretty quickly. Yeah, interesting. I see. So um, I'm curious, with Jam City now, what, uh, what are the plans for the future? What's exciting? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, like any other tech business or even now you look at media business, it, it changes so quickly. And I think we're at the point now in the mobile gaming business where, you know, there's over 500,000 game developers worldwide. Um, there are fewer barriers to entry in terms of making games. Um, but actually getting the distribution for them is becoming a lot harder. So we're in a really good spot right now in that we have a really, really large user base that allows us, gives us the ability to launch a new game. And, um, you know, it's much like uh, a new musician that comes out, why they would need a label, um, because if you just kind of put a song out there, you could be the best artist in the world. and no one may discover you. Um, we make a great game. We're able to put it out there. We're able to get really wide distribution um, on that game through cross-promotion, through our partnerships with Apple and Google, um, as well as through um, different um, marketing strategies. And so, uh, sorry, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get around to <laughs> answering your question directly. Um, 
So that gives us an advantage um, on the distribution side, but with all these developers out there, you really have to create super high quality games and you have to make some really big, bold bets. And when you're making big, bold bets, you're taking um, much higher risks, um, you're investing more money, um, but the potential for real innovation is that much greater. So to me, that's fun. So for example, we have a game coming out called World War Doe, um, which is uh, uh, what we call PVP, player versus player, multiplayer, real time battling strategy game with a deep, deep storyline with really funny characters. Um, this is a really fun game to make. It's been a fun game to iterate on and to market. And again, it's one of those sort of big bets. We've invested a lot of money making the game, but it's not super clear that the market is going to love it. Um, it's unprecedented, um, but we also see huge opportunities, not only for the game itself, but because it has such a deep storyline to it and the characters are so fun and engaging, we think there's also room in that particular game for potential brand extensions, whether it be um, an animated series or plush toys or a movie or you know whatever it may be. And so I'm really excited about that, whether it's a huge hit or not. Um, it's been uh, a great experience and I think you'll see a lot more of that from us um, because in order to cut through the noise, you need to and innovate, you need to take some big chances. You need to take them in measured ways, um, but you need to take some big chances and that's one I'm particularly excited about. Yeah, I see. And what do you think it takes like to create a great game? A game that that spread that you know that that has a lot of people playing and and a lot of friends and and people are, are saying yeah you got to get on this. Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and <laughs> we ask ourselves that uh, every day and try and refine our process every day. Um, I think you need to be really humble. I think we have a very humble company and understanding that there's a lot of competition out there, but I think what it really takes is understanding your customer or player motivation when you have uh you know when you have a player that can spend their an extra their extra three two hours a day on netflix or on instagram or on snapchat or playing candy crush or whatever it may be um you have to figure out what your hardcore user is really going to love about your game. And we have a very distinct and special process for doing that. Um, we have a hypothesis of who the player is going to be, um, what the game is going to be. We put together either, um, usually we'll start out with storyboards and we'll bring in who we think our hardcore audience for that game will be and we'll literally spend three weeks with them. And sometimes we even go as far as developing a prototype for that game. And we'll get lots of input. And at the end of the process, we'll ask ourselves, was our hypothesis correct? And most of the time, it's not 100% correct and we'll end up making 
some edits to that hypothesis, then we'll test it again, and then we'll test it again until we get to a point where, okay, we know at least with these core users that we know that we think are going to be um, our big, the big fans in our game that are going to be um, the real ambassadors in our game. They've approved um, the concept of this game. They think it's un super unique. They think it's something that they would rather do than play one of our competitors' games or be on Instagram or watching Netflix or whatever it is. Then we'll start into the process of either building another prototype or um, beginning to build out the game. And so it's sort of that initial, I would call it almost pre-production phase, where we're spending a lot more time and really understanding our customer. And then when you think about scaling the game, you think about, okay, what could make this game incredibly social? Um, do we have competitive elements in the game? Like with World War II, we have player versus player. Um, we have leagues, uh, um, which we call clans. Um, and some of our other games, we have uh, cooperative type of events where you cooperate with uh, people within the game to achieve a higher level of success or more fun in the game. Um, so all of those initiatives or all of those plans um, make the game very social and make people want to invite their friends because it makes the game more enjoyable yeah i see um so when it comes to like one thing that i found interesting is is the level of uh i guess product development and iteration you go through this process to to you know give yourselves the the best chance to get it right much the same somebody would would follow process if, process if they were creating a SaaS company um if you if you go through that process quite strenuously and even bring a lot of people in to test and and you know a, a certain type of audience why do you think sometimes it still doesn't hit or pop because you always have the execution side of things where like you have to also have the perfect team that works in in harmony so if you think about making a game it's very different than making a piece of software because you have artists involved, you have animators involved, you have engineers involved, you have producers involved, you have product managers who are basically managing the business. And so this whole sort of core team needs to work together in perfect harmony. And you know they're not always able to do that. And so, and sometimes when you're doing initial tests with storyboards, um, and or prototypes, it's not the same as the real game. And the game goes into a direction that you didn't think it was going to go into. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that like having a deep understanding of your customer and having a process to do so greatly increases your chances for massive success um, in a creative process like mobile game development. Yeah, I see. Well, look, um, super mindful of your time, Chris. We have to work towards wrapping up. Um, question, last question is, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? And uh, we can wrap there. 
Yeah, for sure. So I think there's a Wikipedia page out there that probably has some good links. There's probably some, if you want to learn more about the old MySpace days, there's some old Fortune articles. Um, I think there's an article or uh, an interview with Charlie Rose. There's one with Barbara Walters. There's um, some Time articles. There's some Fast Company features. Um, more recently, uh, lots of stuff in, in VentureBeat um, that talks a lot about the business and what we've done. But yeah, I think that Wikipedia is a good good jumping off point. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much uh, for your time, Chris. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Okay, Nathan. Great to meet you. Appreciate your time. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.